my lovely assistant, Wade Freskin. what you're supposed to do. Boy, how about Vanna White? Now, she's been going for about 50 years, hasn't she? Can you believe that? I don't even, when I was, uh, Levi, is this on the internet yet? Oh. Well, maybe they can cut this part out, but anyway... All right, here we go. What? Oh, yes, I did. Thank you, darling, um, for that. Um, a week from tomorrow night, week from tomorrow night, so today's Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday, so a week from tomorrow, that's uh, March 7th, 6.30, we have a spring, our spring cele celebration at NCS, so Neighborhood Christian Schools, um, it's at First General Baptist, 6.30. What, what that is, is it's this kind of the end-of-the-year program where the kids show off some of the things that they've learned um, for their parents and grandparents and church members and donors and people who are interested. So if you're curious what the, what the school's all about or what kind of stuff do they learn, it's mostly going to be the elementary school kids will show you some of the stuff that they, they've learned. It's kind of a dog and pony show if you've never seen it. It's worth seeing at least once. Um, what is? I thought I was selling it hard, I guess, the way I said it. Oh, it's impressive. Okay, so here, I can't, I'm never going to get this back, am I, Brian? So um, it is, it's not like a typical elementary school program where they just maybe just sing songs. We do lots of singing, but in a, in a, in a classical model of education, at the grammar school stage, this K to six stage, so that elementary stage, uh, probably a third of everything they learn is memorized. So what they do every week, all week, all year long, is the students come in and um, every day for about 45 minutes they will chant or sing through a fact they're learning that week in every subject. So there's there's a verse of a hymn, there's science, there's geography, there's history. Um, grammar, math, you know, they sing through something. And then we're only four day a week. So on Thursday afternoons, um, third grade and above is taken into the other room one at a time, and they're tested word for word on all of that work. And then next week there's more work. Um, and so every word's a point, right, Becca? And I don't know how long does it take to say all that memory work. Is that like a... 10 minutes or 7 minutes probably or so. From 5 to 15 is about what one week would be worth. So they do that all, all year long, every weekend. It's very impressive. And there will be other stuff that they'll do 
um, will write a sentence they've never seen on the board, and there's like three or four groups that'll do it, but they'll go through and they'll um, basically diagram the sentence, you know. So it's, it's stuff that it's, it is kind of neat to watch um, if you've never seen it. Once you've seen it ten times, it's still neat, but, you know, it gets a little... It does get, you do get a little numb, numb after a while, but uh, I still cry a lot when I see it because I'm really into it. But anyway, so a week from tomorrow night, we're doing that. And what, it, what that looks like, probably a 50 minute to an hour program, and then we have cookies and kids play in the gym. So, oh man, the so teachers work their buns off. That's a good point. I shouldn't have said that last part. I'm learning how to deal with this. So. The, kid, they, the teachers work their buns off. I'm going to try to get out of this one, Brian. And um, we should really go every time. And it is new every time. It's not the same program. Yeah. Okay. Woo. It's hot up here. The teachers are very pretty, too. We better, we better move on. Is it hot in here? You don't want to tick off the hell. You don't want to tick off the talent. That's the better way of putting it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and then I, I do want to go over this uh, thing right here because this is, um, it's the essence of what you asked last week, um, and we talked about it for a long time, but this is, this is a really, really helpful thing for you to learn. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into that, okay? Our Father, we are grateful to be here uh, this evening. And um, we are so grateful for your word. The God of the universe not only created us, but you have spoken to us in your word. And most notably and most finally in your son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, you have made a way that we could become your children. And we thank you for all of that. We love you so much and we thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb and that you've spoken to us. you filled us with your Spirit and you've given us hope for a future uh, that is full of life abundantly. And I pray now that you would come in the power of the Spirit and speak through your word, speak to all of us and um, in, encourage us by your word and the way that you have saved us through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I, I pray now that you would come and that you would speak through my voice and speak through, through your word to all of us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Um, this is from the book Kingdom Through Covenant, uh, which is a, a book I highly recommend. It is pretty deep sledding and it's, it's, it's not the kind of... Um, let me make a plug for the book. Okay, so Kingdom Through Covenant is written by Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam. Steve Wellam is the uh, systematic theologian. Peter Gentry is a biblical theology guy, language guy. And um, so for years, if you're kind of into this theology thing, for years, um, we've, we've essentially had a couple of different options for how to put the Bible together. You know, everyone wants to put the Bible together. So if you're looking at your page, just flip it over. I'm going to tell you something you don't care about for three minutes. Okay, uh, so for, um, and, and, and if you're not looking at that, you'll at least hear what I'm, I'm saying. Um, we've had a couple of options for the last couple hundred years, 150 years, of how to put the Bible together. One, on one side, you've got covenantal theology. 
So going back to the Reformation, you've got covenantal theology. It's, I'm not sure that Calvin really thought that way completely, but it's, after, it's kind of out of that stream, you know. And that sees lots of, co- the covenant theology sees lots of continuity between the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. So there's lots of continuity. Think Presbyterianism, okay? And then you have dispensationalism kind of on the other end of the spectrum that sees no continuity or very, very little continuity um, between the old and new covenants. And that one you have like seven dispensations. God works differently with these people during different dispensations, okay? Think Schofield Reference Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, okay? So it's what many of us grew up under, kind of a dispensational framework. Okay, so classic covenant theology, uh, you baptize your, in, you sprinkle your infants on the eighth day because they circumcise their babies on the eighth day. Lots of continuity between the covenants. Dispensationalism, classic dispensationalism, a la the, uh, so the old 1917, I think it is, version of the Schofield Reference Bible, the old Oxford blue one that we used to always carry around. Uh, If you look closely at the notes in the Sermon on the Mount, you will see that it says uh, the Sermon on the Mount is only for the, for the, uh, it's not for the church. It's only for, uh, well, it was for the Jews, but they rejected it. And so uh, the only thing that's really for the church is Paul's epistles, the letters. So that's, that's kind of a, so those are very extreme. Those are the two extreme positions. And then you've got moderating positions kind of in, be, in between, kind of covenant light and, or new covenant theology even, and then uh, progressive dispensationalism. So that's a spectrum. Does that make sense? And for a long time now, we've been arguing back and forth, and these seem to be the only options. Um, and what these guys, their, their thesis of this book, and it's about, I don't know, 800 pages of dense reading, um, it speaks into this, this uh, it's seeking to be another way, a third alternative. So it's, it's the kind of book that's written every now and then that seeks to really change the, the conversation in a big way. And it's, it's top-notch scholarship, but what they're trying to say is, actually, covenant theology has a lot of good things going with it, but it's reading, it's, it's forcing onto the Bible some things that aren't there, Okay, dispensationalism kind of might have some things going for it as well, but it's forcing a system on the Bible that's not there. What would happen if we just read the Bible and got our system from it? That's the idea. Now, it's, it's a little bit, if it, to say it that way may, may leave out one important thing. Part of what's going on, uh, Dr. Gentry kept telling, telling us at this in class, part of what's going on is for the first 1,500 years of the church, So Jesus was 2,000 years ago, right? So up until 500 years ago, for the first 1,500 years in theology, all all theology was based on Greek and Latin texts. It was not based on Hebrew. Jews, by and large, rejected the Messiah. So after you get out of the first couple hundred years, or first 50 years maybe even, most of the theology is being driven by the Western people, and, and they're not reading the Hebrew. They're reading Greek and Latin texts. Does that make sense? And it's only since the Reformation 500 years ago that Christians have been studying their Old Testaments in the original language. 200 years of that almost 
was wasted by German higher criticism that did not see the Old Testament as a unity. They said, you've got five different sources for the Torah. The documentary hypothesis, I think there was five. But the point is, they didn't see it as a unit. So they're saying all kinds of really dumb, you know, it's, it's, you leave it to the most intelligent people in the room to say the dumbest stuff sometimes, right? German higher criticism. So it's really only fairly recently that scholars have been studying the Old Testament in the, real, in the original languages, or yeah, Hebrew and Aramaic, with a view to this is really a unity, and with an understanding of literary structures, and add to that, through the archaeological discoveries that have happened since the 1830s, they have other texts that tell them about the whole culture that the Bible was, that, that the Bible was written in. So there's more information in the last 150 years than there's ever been. There's other texts that help open up the world of the Bible. We're reading it as if it's a unity and reading it in the original language. So the argument is there's a lot more that we can know now than they did in the 1600s when they did the Westminster Standards. Does that make sense? And this book is a very good book, but it's, a, it's kind of for scholars, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Hebrew in it. But it's, it's really worth, if you're a kind of a studier and you like the, 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 the real thing, you like it out of the horse's mouth, it's a, it's a good thing to, to purchase. It's called Kingdom Through Covenant. There is an abridged version that's uh, got a really a name that's bigger than the book, and it's not as helpful. Uh, I would say just go ahead and get the big one and then skip the parts you don't want to read. Because the, the, there's, there's so much, well, anyway, just, the little one just didn't work, Okay. Um, this comes from that book. Now, there's the plug, because it, it, for some of you, I know Abigail, I think you ended up getting the book, I think. Oh, yeah, she's going to work on it, though. Um, it's worth it, because what he does, the first part and last part are tying it all together with the theology, and the middle section goes through every major covenant of the Old Testament and just exegetes it, just explains it in its context. Um, very good stuff. Okay. Well, maybe. Everyone says, well, that's New Covenant theology. They come up with their own name because they don't want to be pigeonholed. Because what's happened when the book came out, um, you know, especially the Reformed community was, was bad about this. Uh, they, when they came out, you had someone flip through the book, flip through their favorite passages, look at a couple things, and then write a review that totally missed the point saying, you know, you're just, you're just New Covenant theology and we know that's wrong just poo-pooed them and just dismissed them without actually dealing with the, with the arguments. Um, and that's just, it's just kind of not advancing anything when you assume everything that needs to be proven. So um, I, I've lost most of the crowd, Abigail. You and I are the only ones still here. So we're going to jump back into this. Any other comments or thoughts on that? Okay. So let's look at this then. Um, what this seeks to do is in an illustration demonstrate, as it says, time versus scope of covenant membership. So what you're looking at is the, all the major covenants of the Bible. At the top of your page is, well, it's, it sort of represents time from top to bottom. So top would be like creation, bottom would be like, into, you know, new heavens, new earth, sort of. And what it represents is who is in which covenants. 
Okay? So if you look at the, at, at the top, you have the creation covenant. Do you see that? And the creation covenant is there at the beginning, and it, it encompasses everyone who is part of the creation all the way down to the last judgment. Do you see that? So if you're looking, you see the creation covenant, and then you have that, you know, I don't know what, what color it is, but it's kind of a light gray or a dark, you know, we've got dark, light, and lighter is what I'm looking at. And it's the, you know, it's the little bit lighter. And it, it encompasses everyone that's part of the creation all the way down to the judgment. Then you have the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant includes a few less people than the creation covenant, but it also encompasses everyone alive, kind of from there on down to the judgment. Why does the Noahic covenant encompass fewer people than the creation covenant? Because there are some people that died in the flood. <laughs> there was a whole bunch of people that died in the flood, and they were part of the creation covenant, but not a part of the Noahic covenant, because they were gone. Um, so that's the Noahic covenant. So that's just representative there. It's fewer people than, than that. And then you have, what do you think that little dot represents? It's one little dot at the top there. Abrahamic covenant. And it starts with one man. But then it expands slowly to encompass his family, right? And then, so that, that goes down, and then it narrows again. That's interesting. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. But then you have the Israelite covenant within that, or the Mosaic covenant within that. That starts out of Abraham's family, but it doesn't include all of Abraham's children, does it? What about Ishmael? And Ishmael's descendants are not part of the Israelite covenant. Yes? Yeah, yeah, the, the children from the concubine that we don't like to talk about, right? Yeah, they're not in there either. Yes. Right, exactly. And that's exactly right. So they're not a part of the Israelite covenant as well. So you have the, a smaller group within the Abrahamic people that is the Mosaic or Israelite covenant. And then you, within that, you have the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That's David and his line. So you have David and a line going straight down to the second dot. Now, what do you have in the second dot is um, the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Israelite covenant and the Davidic covenant are all finding their fulfillment in one person, Jesus Christ. That's the second dot. Um, and he himself starts a new covenant. And out of the new covenant, whoever is in that new covenant then is part of, of that. And so you see it expanding very quickly there. And that new covenant encompasses all those people in, 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 in this time now before the judgment, but even going through the judgment to the new heavens and the new earth. Because we will still be members of Christ and members of the new covenant in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see that? So this is, this is kind of one-stop shopping for understanding your whole Old Testament in a, in a picture. Any comments or questions on that? It's pretty good, isn't it? So there's an area between the new covenant and the dark line. Between the new covenant? 
Yes. So I think, so Wade's talking, once you get to the second dot, you start opening back up, okay? You've got a dark line, and then within that, you've got some space, and then another smaller dark line. Do you see that? What's the space in between those two lines? What do you think? Yeah, no, yeah, it's the Jews. It's the Jews who are saved. So they're part of the new covenant, but they're also a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? So it's not only the new covenant, it's the Abrahamic covenant that's opened back up. This is what Paul says in Galatians. Now that you Gentiles have come to Christ, you are uh, fellow, fellow inheritors along with the Israels, and you, you will receive the promises made to Abraham along with others, you know. Okay, what, what was your question that you had? Yeah, it just, it just encompasses all of this and includes all of this. So the Noahic covenant will just really include all of this because everyone is a, everyone is a member of the Noahic covenant. That's a, that's a human being. Or even, it's actually, the Noahic covenant is actually with all of creation. And so it's with the humans, it's with the animals, and it's still, it's still an act, like we're still in it. We're still under the Noahic covenant, which is why you still see rainbows in the sky. As long as there's, you know, I, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, such and such, will not end. So the Noahic covenant ends when the when the at the, the judgment at the at the last judgment when this world ends. That's why that grace stops there uh, at the at the at the judgment um, before the new heavens and the new earth, because the Noahic covenant goes until this earth stops. Yeah. Any other comments or questions about that? It's very helpful. I would recommend hanging on to this. Uh, because it's, it's kind of the creation covenant is made kind of with the creation and it, it stops at the new heavens and the new earth. Because what the new heavens and the earth, what the new covenant gives us in the new heavens and the new earth is really what the creation covenant was supposed to give us, only it's better. There's no... There's no uh, there's no opportunity for sin. There's no opportunity for death. Everything like that's past. Now we're living with God in a perfect world, in perfect bodies that will never die. And so it's kind of what the, you know, if everything had a, now God, God had a purpose for all of it. He knew what was going to happen. He, you know, but if in the creation covenant, if Adam and Eve would have obeyed God and eaten from the tree of life, they could have kind of lived forever in just kind of a perfect existence. That, that's almost as good as what we're going to receive at the, at the resurrection. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Do I need to read? I should. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I left, I don't have the, even the book, uh, the line. Oh, yes, I can tell you that. Um, I, know, I know what he's saying. Um, so I didn't read this paragraph. This is neat. Neat. Um, but I've, I've, ta I've taught you on all of that, and in the last phrase that she's talking about, what Gentry is saying there is, uh, if you think about it, the, the whole storyline of the Bible is a chiasm. So he starts in the creation, the first creation of the old earth. God makes the land first, and then he puts a people in it. He, then he makes man and puts man in the land, right? 
He makes the land, and then he creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the land. In the new covenant, which is leading up to the new heavens and the new earth, God does it the opposite way. He makes the people first. So, 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. That's what he says. It's not new creature. It's it's the word creation. And it, it, it says, the way it is, it's not to be a smart like, but the way it says it in Greek is much, it, it looks, it, it's plainer than it is in English. That what he's saying is, if anyone is in Christ, right there you're looking at the new creation. It's already started. That's what he's saying. And so what he does in the new covenant is he creates you new from the inside out. And right now, if you're born again, you are already a part of the new creation. This is, I'm sorry, but this is exactly what Revelation 20 is talking about. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This first resurrection in Revelation 20, do you know what I'm talking about? That is regeneration. Just check John 5. John 5 gives you the key to understanding it. Well, actually, the key is right there in Revelation. It's a chiasm. But, but he spells it out in plain language in John 5. That regeneration. If you're born again, you are already raised from the dead, and you are part of the new creation. So what he's doing, he makes the, pers- he makes the man first, and uh, then at the resurrection, he finishes the man and makes the land in the new heavens and the new earth. So the old creation, he makes the land and then puts the man in it. The new creation, he makes the man first and then he will make the land later. So right now, I just can't emphasize this enough. We should look at this text. Um, but if I do, I'll never get anything done. Uh, we'll never get out of the Old Testament. Well, let's go to Revelation 20. We might as well. We're already talking about it. Revelation 20. It's, you know, baffled people, people for so long. I am confident, I'm confident that I'm right, that I'm interpreting it correctly. Um, and the name of the game here is you are already raised from the dead. You have already passed from death to life. You are already reigning with Christ. And you will never die. Isn't that good news? You will never die. Your body's going to wear out. They're going to put it in the ground. And that's got to be that way because it's made out of dirt. And if you're going to get the good one that he's got prepared for you, if this, this is from 2 Corinthians, if this earthly tent in which we dwell is destroyed, we know that we have a building from God. So we've, we've got to get rid of this body that's made out of dirt so we can get the good one that lasts forever. But you, and that which makes you you, You have already passed out of death into life. You are already raised from the dead, and you will never die. And this is why the apostles weren't scared of anyone, and we shouldn't be either. And this is what Revelation 20 is saying, but it's a book full of images, and it's supposed to be hard to understand because it's written to seven churches under a time of persecution, and the person carrying the letter is is an agent of the enemy state. Because because John's on, he's in prison in in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So he's writing a letter to seven churches telling them to stay faithful to Jesus and to deny the power of the authorities. But he's got to send these, these letters to these seven churches by the hand of the authorities themselves. 
So he has to write things in code. And if you don't know your Old Testament, you won't get Revelation because it's full of Old Testament. But he's expecting the seven churches will be able to figure it out. Okay? And here's what he says. Um, and it's written in, to encourage them so they'll be, have enough confidence to die. That's what he's writing it for. You be faithful to the end and I'll give you a crown of life. So he's writing this to seven churches. It's about an event that's going to happen within three years. Sorry, I'm just telling you. I'm just pretty positive this is true. Most of the thing in Revelation was going to happen within three years. It was written in the late 60s and it's, it's going to be over by the year 70. And um, he, it's, these people were going to be slaughtered and he needed them to, to have some, some guts here. And uh, so then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This part, the last part, is going, you know, this is, this in, chapter 21 and 22 encompass the future. I'm not denying that. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations anymore. Now, I cannot teach a whole class on Revelation 20 because then I won't do what I was supposed to do tonight. But I'll say this. What did Jesus say? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He says that in the context of himself plundering Satan's goods by casting demons out. So Jesus says in his ministry, in essence, the reason I can cast out demons is because I have already bound Satan. Okay? So you wonder, when was Satan bound or when is Satan bound? He was bound during Jesus' ministry. And that's why Jesus could plunder his goods. Okay? That's what that is. It's just in images. And he's bound so that he might not deceive the nations. All the nations became Christians, by the way. Still is, still is happening. He might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them uh, were, were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Literally, it says they lived. It's an aorist tense verb. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now watch this. Here's the key to understanding it all. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I'm just going to outline it for you. It's, a, it's an implied chiastic structure, A-B-B-A. And um, the first resurrection takes care of the problem of the second death. What's the second death? It's defined for us in the text as the lake of fire. Hell is the second death. How do you keep out of hell? Well, how do you keep out of hell in the Christian gospel? Anyone know how to get out of hell? How do you stay out of hell? Yeah, you're born again. You're born again. You're, you're saved. You're regenerated. You're born again. That's how you keep out of hell. 
Uh, it's, like a, it's like a resurrection. And it's called a resurrection in John 5. John's the same guy that's writing this. So being born again is the first resurrection, and it takes care of the problem of the second death, hell. And if, if there's a first resurrection, there's also a second resurrection. And if there's a second death, there's also a first death. So you see it in a, in a chiastic structure. If the first resurrection takes care of the problem of the second death, then the second resurrection should take care of the problem of the first death. The first death is physical death, and the second resurrection will solve its problem. Do you see what I mean? So the first resurrection is regeneration, and the second resurrection is physical resurrection. You can say it this way. The first resurrection is spiritual resurrection. The second resurrection is physical resurrection. The first death is physical death, and the second death is spiritual death. Now, and if you go to John 5, John spells all this out for us. So what's the, what's the point of all this? Other than now you know that you can't be premillennial, you have to either be amillennial or postmillennial. <laughs> I've just solved a couple hundred years of debate for you. Um, beyond that, here's the point. You will never die. I mean, if we're going to get stuck on a rabbit trail, this is the one to get stuck on. Jesus says in John 8, anyone who keeps my word will never taste death. Isn't that good news? Good news this week, isn't it? You'll never die if you're in Christ. Uh, by the way, there's something really encouraging on 1 Corinthians 7. 7? Isn't it 7? No, 11. This is for you, and we can talk about it later, but... I can't remember anything. Seven. Yeah. 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 Your child is alive, you know. And uh, you will never die. That's encouraging. And you can, right now you're reigning with Christ. You're part of the winning team. You know, even if, even if we've got a vote in a caucus tomorrow that... Uh, that I don't get to go, or Saturday, that I don't get to go to because uh, I already had plans and no one knew what was going on. Jesus is on his throne and you're reigning with Christ. Any thoughts about that or comments? Yeehaw! Yeehaw! I mean, this is why we leap for joy in the gospel. The gospel message is really good news. What? Oh, the Baptists. Bunch of yahoos. We're a bunch of, bunch of deadbeats, aren't we? Well, we have 15 minutes. Do you think we can get through this, this little thing I've passed out, that Wade passed out in 15 minutes? No, and that was just for him. Okay, so here it's the, it's the passage that is talking about how it's, it's telling the unbelieving wife to live with a or excuse me, the believing wife to live with an unbelieving husband. And it says that your husband is made holy even through your faith, and otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are clean. Presbyterians look at this and probably see in it proof that the children of believers are in the covenant. And I Baptists, we can't go that far because that's not what the new covenant says. 
But, here, but I think too many Baptists go too far the other direction. So my point was, um, the Bible is teaching that the children of believers, and even if there's only one believer, that the children of believers, there's something special about them, and they are members of the family of God in some kind of a special way, um, that God has put some kind of a... I, I don't even know, because Paul doesn't spell it out. Paul says they're made... Uh, I'm going to get the right... I'm going to get the right word. I think it says they're made holy. What? Yeah. So they're made. So this is evidence to me that the children of believers go to heaven if they die before they make a profession of faith. Uh, you know, if they're if they're at a young age. Now, if they're old and they're rebellious and they've rejected the gospel, that's something different. Um. But I don't know that I'm right about that. But that's what I think's going on there. What verse is it, Luke? Okay. Otherwise, otherwise your children would be unclean, akatharta, but now hagya estin, they're holy. Yeah, yeah, they're holy. So I don't know what all it means. All I know it does mean something. And I, I would have confidence that God does... Uh, you know, receiving the children of believers at least, maybe all of them, the children of believers at least, if they die. Friday's the, the anniversary, right? Yeah, so. So I think you have complete confidence that your baby is a lot happier than, than any of us are and wouldn't trade it for the world. Okay, any other thoughts or comments? Okay. Can you go over the chiasm one more time? Uh, in Revelation? Yeah. Okay, so in, in, in Revelation, it's an applied chiasm, um, and it's an ABBA structure. It, the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, being born again. And, and it takes care of the problem of the second death, which is a spiritual death. So if you, it, blessed and holy are all who take place in the first resurrection, over them the second death has no power. And then the second resurrection is physical resurrection. That's the resurrection of your body someday when Jesus returns. It takes care of the problem of the first death, which is a physical death. So it's, does that make sense? So, uh, so what would be A and uh, A would be first resurrection. It, it would go like this. First resurrection, second resurrection, First death, second death. Does that make sense? I've got it written out and I can get it to you. Okay, let's jump in. I don't know where my notes are. We can do this. This is short notes. I've got 10 minutes. I can't say my name in 10 minutes. Don? <laughs> yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, we yes, Baptists made up. He asks about the age of accountability. I'll just say briefly. My understanding is Baptists made up the idea of age of accountability because we didn't know what else we were going to say to the Presbyterians. <laughs> and and so in in this is probably I think this is probably why infant baptism starts. 
It's an answer to the problem of how do we get rid of original sin. And so once Augustine formulates the doctrine of original sin the way that they do, and it's codified after this argument they have with Pelagius. I don't know. Someone would need to check me out, and I may be totally wrong on this. But I think they they need to come up with a way to to get rid of original sin. So infant baptism erases original sin and so that if your baby dies, they still go to heaven. And we rejected all of that, I think rightly so, but we still have to have some way of saying babies. So here's the thing. I'm not going to talk too much more about this. But here's the thing. Everyone agrees, almost everyone. There's a couple of knotheads in every generation. Everyone agrees that babies especially of believers, go to heaven if something happens to them. Everyone believes that. We all know that's truth. We all know that we all know our God is going to do that. Because Jesus says, let the little children come to me. We all know that's true. But we formulated a doctrine of original sin that's pretty tight. And so we have to figure out how do we make those two things reconciled. And the, 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 the plain fact is God just has not given us enough information. So we invent possible solutions uh, to, to, to help us think consistently. Um, but the fact is, we just don't have as much information as we want. And, uh, but we, can, we have enough information, I believe, to know, to, have, to give this man confidence. A year ago Friday, his, his, his baby was killed. So uh, this is, hope this is not bothered, bothersome to Mr. Jens, me, me saying this, but we all have the confidence to know that the baby is with Jesus. Christians have been arguing for years on how we, where we anchor that in Scripture. Yeah, and it's a, it's a hard, hard nut to crack because the, God just has not given us enough of the information we're wanting. Okay. All right. Any other questions? <laughs> Thank you. Can we, can we tear into this one? So uh, we'll probably finish it up next week now. But that's okay because there was nothing wrong with that rabbit trail. You, you know, the, the news that you will never die is always a good, that's always a good message. Um, but here's the thing. We saw that, uh, that God was doing something new with the last Adam, the nation of Israel. The last Adam, the nation of Israel, The question was, is Israel as a nation, are they going to keep covenant and stomp the head of the serpent and bring salvation to the world, or are they going to um, break the covenant and be exiled from the new garden just like Adam was? And we found out that there was all of this prophecy throughout the scriptures, and then it happened, and what did we find out? Well, Israel as a nation, Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 just like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithless with, we, with me. And we learned that Israel transgressed the covenant and they were exiled out of the promised land. It, uh, Northern kingdom went to Assyria in the 700s BC. The southern kingdom Judah went to Babylon in the 500s BC. And, uh, and the prophets then go on to talk about how even all the nations are away from God. The nations aren't where they're supposed to be. So the whole world is in exile. The whole world has been kicked out of God's presence. Does that make sense? So now we're looking at the hope. So this lesson here, however long it takes us, 
uh, is going to be the last section in the Old Testament. And then we're going to start looking at all the fulfillment of the promises. But today the promise is made. Let's go to Genesis 49. Probably only be able to do this verse before we have to stop tonight. But Genesis 49 is this uh, great passage where Jacob blesses his sons. Jacob, who is Israel, um, he blesses his sons and goes through every one of them, giving them the supernatural word from the Lord of what's going to happen in the future. In fact, it says in Genesis 49, verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and, sa- and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. You know, he's, he's telling them about the future and gives them prophecy. Notice what he says in chapter 49, verse 10. Oh, excuse me, let's go to verse, 40, uh, verse 8, 49, 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That's interesting. Now, in, in their day, the people who are alive and listening to this, in their day, all the brothers bowed down to Joseph. But in the future, it's all the brothers are going to be bowing down to Judah. Okay, it's a little bit of a shift. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Now watch verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then there's a translation issue here. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, There's a translation issue because the Masoretic text, which is what our our Old Testaments are based on, we've talked about the Masoretic text before. Um, So I'm hoping you know what that is. If not, look it up. Uh, but the Masoretic text, the Leningrad Codex, comes from the uh, uh, kind of the 10th century A.D., so a thousand years after Jesus. Okay? And um, it, it has the word Shiloh until Shiloh comes. Um, now, if my, let's just rely on my footnote. My footnote on this verse, the ESV says, by slight revocalization, you get what I just read until tribute comes to him. Revocalization means you're changing the dots around the letters that represent the vowels. So you don't have to change any consonants to get that. Okay. A slight emendation yields, compare Septuagint, Syriac, and Targum, until he comes to whom it belongs. I've got the Septuagint in front of me, until, it, come, until it, uh, it comes, you know, those things remaining to him. So, you know, the Septuagint is a translation into Greek that was made, Genesis, probably 150 years before Christ. So that Septuagint is representing an older Hebrew tradition than the Masoretic text. Does that make sense? So uh, I think a, a lot of at least Christian scholars believe that this verse is a messianic prophecy. It's at least possible that unbelieving Jewish people 
played with the dots a little bit that represent the vowels around the word because Christians kept using this verse to preach Jesus as the Messiah. It did happen some that the Jews messed with their text just a little bit because they got tired of the Christians beating them over the head with their own Bibles. So it's at least possible that the true reading is preserved in the Septuagint and that messing, putting the dots in a little different position yields this, or, you know, and I haven't studied this out enough to really know all of the details. I'm just giving you some information there. This looks to be a prophecy uh, that essentially it says, um, the scepter is not going to depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet uh, until, uh, until what belongs to the Messiah comes to the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, that's a kind of expanded, what did they call that Bible? Uh, the Amplified. That's Joel's Amplified version. Um, yes, you had a question? I can see it in your eyes. Yes. Yeah, even if you just take the Masoretic text, although that, that third line makes no sense at all until Shiloh comes, you still have the other lines that are clearly Messianic. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on there, and I've told you a little bit more than I know right there. You'll need to check some of that out because I'm not sure I had all of the details right on that. Um, some of that's going off of my memory there. And my footnote, okay? Any other comments or thoughts or questions? If I, if I end now, I'm actually ending on time. And we'll just pick it up there. Please don't throw away your, your, um, your handouts because we'll use them next time. Any other comments or questions before we go? Yes, Luke. Yes, absolutely. So Luke says, uh, you know, we're going to have... Uh, people gather around. Uh, do you want just men or can anyone? Okay. Yeah, Brian gets everyone. So uh, if you want to uh, just close in prayer here in just a second, the way we're going to do that is uh, would it make you uncomfortable? We stuck you and your son right here. It'd be easier for us to gather around you. So just come on front. We're going to close in prayer this way. Um, so, um, Friday's an anniversary, and even though that, you know, we know that they're trusting in the Lord, it's still a, it's still a, a, a day of remembrance, and, uh, and they're going to need some special strength. Why don't you just sit right down here, and we'll, we'll pray for you.